If you have those same Bible apps or real Bibles, get them to Mark chapter 1 as we continue our series. Like a quick summary is probably in order for the first six messages. We paused last week to announce a new opportunity, a, a community in crisis outreach. So thank you, Pastor John, for sharing your heart, your passion, invitation, and bringing the word, the brief word to us in the midst of the wind and the tattered tents and the rooster crowing and the truck honking. Welcome to Field Church. The previous six weeks, I've been attempting to lay significant foundation that we might rightly receive this message, this letter, this treatise from a man called Mark, who writes an account about Jesus. What is the gospel is probably the the most important question that we can ask and answer. And so I'll continue to reiterate that. According to Mark, the gospel, which literally means the good news, is that the Son of God himself has come. That's how he begins this treatise. The beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And Mark will spend the rest of this letter trying to prove that by showing us who Jesus is, by his own claims, by what others claim of him, and by showing us what he came to do and to accomplish, as well as what he taught. The first words that Jesus is quoted by Mark as saying are telling. They reveal purpose and mission. They're in verse 15 of chapter 1 where Jesus says, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel, the good news. According to Mark, Jesus proclaimed that God's kingdom was coming in ever-increasing fullness. Jesus clearly revealed that the coming of the kingdom of God meant a whole lot of things. He would teach it and then give evidence to it by his life and his service. It meant healing for those who were sick. Justice for those oppressed, freedom for the enslaved, renewal and restoration for all that is decaying and broken, mercy for those who have made mistakes, forgiveness for those who have sinned, wisdom for all who long for truth, purpose for the languishing and listless, peace for those who have conflict or turmoil, provision for those who are poor, rest for the weary, power for those who are oppressed, strength for all who are weak, voice for those who have been silenced, and vision for those who can't see, to name a few. So does that sound like good news is a question I've repeatedly asked. I hope more than ever, considering the world that we find ourselves living in, that there is a kingdom ruled by one, one who has all power and yet is humble, One who uses his power only for good. One who doesn't grasp at keeping power, but actually does quite the opposite and lays it down to empower others. He loves, he gives, he is wise and speaks wisdom. He shows mercy and compassion. He is just. And he holds all who would serve under him to the same accountability, to the same standard, to the same character. And who is this ruler king? According to Mark, Proclaimed by John the baptizer, it is Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus the Galilean, the unexpected one, yet prophesied about throughout Jewish history. There would be a coming Messiah, anointed one, a coming Savior to deliver, to rescue, to lead, to rule for all time. But Jesus came in an unexpected way at an unexpected time to bring an unexpected kingdom, an upside down kingdom from the perspective of 
the world, that he would change the world through service and sacrifice, not through power and greed, through invitation and challenge, not through manipulation and force, through love and truth, not oppression and corruption, not quite what anyone was expecting. But that's the gospel. That's the good news. It's what the followers of Jesus were meant to proclaim and extend in following his will and his way. We are meant to be recipients of the blessings of living in this kingdom and then blessed even as agents sent ones to represent this king, this Jesus, living the way he lived, defending what he defended and serving those he served. The gospel we've seen is a lot more about heaven coming to earth than about the the message of trying to escape this earth or world to get to heaven. I spent a message on that theme. Therefore, we've got work to do. Jesus taught his followers to pray, God, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. He teaches us to minister, to live and serve in the way that he did and he modeled. He calls his followers, he equips them and teaches them. And while they are coming to believe more fully, he empowers them. He sends them on that incredible mission to be representatives, to be like ambassadors with his authority. This is the mission of all who claim the name Jesus to follow his way of life. And it's a massive mission. It's, it's so big and so daunting if we were to truly grasp it that we could rightly ask, how, how could we make any impact in that? How could we possibly make a difference, especially looking into the world that we live, live in? It will take our whole life and the generations to come. We are not solo missionaries. God's kingdom, though, will always grow and always multiply. It's his way. It's the way he has created all things with an abundant nature within them, just like a forest is present within the seed of the smallest cone. Or you might say an orchard is present in the seed of an apple. God creates things to multiply and expand and at the same with his kingdom for all time. It is a progressive kingdom and we have that kind of work to do. What is our hope? Not in our own strength or ability, but in the one who has empowered and sent. Jesus models the way that we are meant to live in the power of the Holy Spirit, which happens right here in in Mark chapter 1. The Spirit anoints him. It comes down upon him. And then we see him living his life and ministry in that power. That's the model for all who follow him, that we too are the ones to be filled and empowered by the Holy Spirit, the one he has poured out upon all peoples. We have the very same Spirit that was with Jesus, enabling him to live, to minister, to work. And we are meant to represent him in those same Ways. I spent the last three messages preaching on this spirit empowerment, spirit-driven living. There's the first six messages in a nutshell. This morning, another foundational piece as we move just a bit further into Mark chapter 1. And it is this. You don't have to believe before following Jesus. That might sound strange to our ears. Let me try to unpack that. But I believe it is what Mark teaches. Not necessarily what the church has taught either overtly or covertly for centuries. We've almost taught the opposite. You need to believe first and probably even behave more like this group of people. And then you can belong with us. Jesus calls followers before 
they ever believe in him. To be with him. And while they were with him and continue journeying with him, they are coming to believe. And before their belief is full, he empowers them, sends them with his authority to do his work, to represent him, to expand the kingdom. Isn't that an amazing thought? I think we should be greatly encouraged, every one of us, for wherever we are in our journey of coming to follow Jesus. And it should give us great hope for family, for friends, for neighbors who have not yet met or heard from this Jesus, that they too can begin to follow him without yet believing in him. They can be, they can belong, they can find purpose, they can draw near to him, and God promises to draw near to them. So here it is, Mark chapter 1, verse 16 through 20, the proof that Jesus calls followers of him before they ever believe. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, Jesus saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, and they were casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little further, he saw James, the son of Zebedee and John, his brother, who were in their boat mending the nets. And immediately he called them and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and they followed him. Now, according to the gospel of John, which isn't our focus, but is helpful to piece the story together at times. This is not the first time that Jesus met these men. He meets Simon. Later, he would name Peter, the rock, and his brother Andrew, and then James and John, who would become kind of like the inner circle of the rest of the followers of Jesus. But they all knew each other. They fished and made a living on this Sea of Galilee. And though it's called a sea, it was really a rather large lake, Consider it about twice the size in square miles of Lake Washington, much rounder though. They knew each other. In fact, most of the fishermen would, but the other gospels even say they, they were partners together at times in the work, these four men. I think if we don't know that, and we don't know that Jesus already had met them, in fact, there's much evidence that they had been with Jesus at times, maybe even seen with their very own eyes some of the, what they could only describe as miracles, things they couldn't otherwise explain. It's possible that some or all of these men were actually at the wedding feast in Cana where Jesus turned water to wine. And they probably talked about him much and maybe even heard him teach. I think if we don't know that, then we might believe that they had some kind of extraordinary faith and belief, just this immediacy to hear a man they've never met or seen before call to them to leave everything and follow and off they go immediately. We either have to conclude that or we have to conclude that the compelling nature of Jesus must have been some, like some kind of Yoda mind trick. Follow me, you will. And off they went. But if we come to see that these men actually knew of Jesus and had been with him and even seen some of his miracles and heard his authoritative type teaching, then we might ask a different question. What were they doing back on the lake? <laughs> Why weren't they already following him and with him at all times? Well, these were men who had jobs and had families and had a career that worked with, within their, their family, family trade of fishing. They also likely never had the concept at this point in their life of becoming a disciple. 
See, Jesus was a Jewish rabbi. And though he was youngish, just starting on in his professional ministry, most rabbis would only begin to be considered at the age of 30. So it's estimated that Jesus was about 30. And these fishermen were also likely young men, but they were well past the age of becoming disciples of a rabbi. See, all, all Hebrew boys would have had the same education up to age 12. And then only the best or brightest, so to speak, would be taken on by a Jewish rabbi to study under him with the hopes of potentially becoming a rabbi themselves. It was a great honor to study, to be considered uh, worthy of passing on the heritage of, of their faith like that. So these men, even if they were in their 20s or 30s, because they were not chosen by a rabbi, they would go and join the family trade, the family business, in this case, becoming fishermen. But it wasn't just being chosen. You actually had to apply with great effort to prove yourself worthy to a rabbi, and then the rabbi would select his disciples, his learners who would follow after him. So to hear a Jewish rabbi on the recruit, so to speak, coming to you and inviting you without you even putting your name forward or asking, it wouldn't even have been on their mind or aspiration. There was something clearly that resonated deep within their core of everything they were in their upbringing to be chosen, to be selected, to be drawn in. And I'm not at all saying that Jesus didn't have some kind of great intrigue and compelling nature about him. He certainly did. But there was something much deeper to the chance to become a disciple. But I think what is clear is these men had no idea that dropping their nets that day was going to change everything in their life and world. It's likely even that they kissed their wives if they had them or said goodbye to their kids and said, and said to their fathers who were there leaving there in the boats, hey, we'll be back soon. What is certain we'll see unfold in the rest of this book is that these men did not yet believe that Jesus was the Messiah, the Son of God. They would come to believe that ever so slowly. And yet almost immediately, these men are called disciples. Without that belief, they are called disciples. And by Mark chapter 5, they will be sent out and empowered to preach the gospel. Without any full sense of what Jesus would do, still not believing, we will see, in the resurrection. And yet they are proclaimers of the gospel. And they are powerful extenders of the kingdom of God in supernatural ways. We'll come to see that. But how does that strike you? Followers of Jesus, disciples of Jesus who do not yet believe that he is the Messiah, the Son of God. Certainly they do not yet know what they believe about this Jewish rabbi, this Jesus of Nazareth, though there must have been great intrigue and a drawing of sorts to him. I bet most of us can actually resonate with that quite significantly. How many of us have had many steps of faith and belief over our journey of following Jesus? Many moments. For these disciples, there's no way to say through the story that there was one moment where they truly came to believe. It was moment by moment and experience by experience. In this first message of the series, I said that one of the major themes we'll see throughout this gospel is that Jesus and his call is unbelievable in both iterations of the word. The simple yet profound prayer that I've quoted before from Mark chapter 9, the father in Mark chapter 9 who's in distress, who comes to Jesus begging for help for his son, 
And, and he says, Jesus, if you can do anything, would you help me? And Jesus says, if I can. And he says, I, do you believe that I can? He says, I, I, yes, I believe. Help me with my unbelief. Do we not resonate with that prayer? It may summarize the experience of all the disciples and perhaps every one of us. I will give an invitation for those of you that do have a single moment of believing, of transformation, of enlightenment, so to speak, or going from not at all believing in God or wondering about God or not at all believing in Jesus, the Son of God or the, the Messiah, to, to instantaneously, in a moment, with some kind of divine experience, then coming to believe wholeheartedly. If you have that kind of testimony of God in your life, we would love to hear that. But my guess is that most of us would relate more to these disciples. We've been drawn in. We've been invited. We've heard in some way a, a, a call, whether compelling or not, in intrigue at least. And we've started to f pursue and follow. And after many, many moments and experiences, we've come to believe much more deeply. By this message, I in no way want to diminish the importance of faith and belief. Jesus honors that and, and, and empowers those who have it and highlights incredible faith. But he does have a mind to set to grow it, to see it grow and expand and multiply, just like everything that God does. For me, my story is much more like the disciples in a strange way, I suppose, growing up in a Christian home, attending church since I was a fetus, being raised on Sunday school and flannel graphs and Noah's Arky Arky and VBS and summer camps. I can't tell you how many times I prayed some form of sinner's prayer, we would call it, at that special moment of the service or the summer camp or the lesson, that if you didn't pray something like this prayer, that you'd be led by the preacher, teacher, or pastor, you, you might not be certain that you would be one of God's or get into heaven if, you'd, if you die and avoid the fires of hell. Yes, that was some of my upbringing. And so I can't tell you how many times I prayed that very prayer because I wanted to be sure because I was, I was a listener. And I would listen and I would hear something I didn't know before about what they said was the gospel and think, well, then the previous prayer that I prayed, if I didn't know that, then I, I, can't, I can't know if I'm even one of his disciples. And there was some sense of uncertainty about my faith or my security. There was even some fear about who I was and what my identity was. And that's clearly just not the message and the call of Jesus into the lives of disciples. And so one, if you resonate with that and even smile at it because it's your own experience or you would give grace to a child like Faith who needed to grow and, and see that developed, why do we not give that same grace to one another, to those who are of older age or adult age, to come to Jesus in the same way, to begin to follow him, to even become his disciples without yet believing fully? in who he is, on a path to belief. Jesus said it was good to be like a child. Matthew 18, verse 3, Truly, I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever, though, humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. We could probably draw a lot from that, but very simply, a child has curiosity and intrigue and a sense of wonder and oh, by the way, no real capacity to grasp deep theological arguments or concepts. And by the way, they are fine with it. <laughs> and Jesus says, we need to become more like them in our pursuit of living in the kingdom of heaven. Is Jesus today any less compelling or intriguing his words, his life, his claim than he was in those early days 
when he walked the shore of the Sea of Galilee and called these men, or later on when people were coming to draw near to him, to hear him teach and preach, to witness his work, is he less compelling and intriguing today? All recent evidence, statistics, whatever you would say about statistics, but recent evidence says he's just as compelling today as he was 50 years ago, 100 years ago, 500 years ago, if there was evidence that went that far back. The claims of Jesus are compelling and drawing if we can hear them without any other baggage. Jesus says to these men, come follow me and I will make you become. He promises identity, adventure, purpose, something more. In a world that is looking and longing for what is worthy to give one's life to, Jesus offers it. He offers even more. Are people turning away from the claims because they're just, they're, they're just too out there? They're too good to be true? Or are they never hearing them because it is muddy with that, so to speak, baggage? It's hard to hear because that very same research that says people's interest and intrigue and wonder about Jesus is just as high as it's ever been. But their interest and intrigue in joining a church is as low as it's ever been. In fact, in some ways, there's a visceral negative reaction to the contrary to be a part of a church while that same person on that statistical survey might say, I'm still very interested in Jesus. In fact, I'm very close to him. We want to blame others. We, we want to look to history or look to those other peoples and other groups, but we need to take responsibility. We have done that. We have built those walls either overtly or covertly. We have made belief and oftentimes behavior a prerequisite to belonging. And that's not the way of Jesus. It's the way of the world. Jesus came to flip that on its head. He initiated the upside down kingdom. You could be with Jesus and find belonging with him before ever coming to fully believe in him on that journey. The kinds of peoples he called to be his disciples were not the religious elite or the high priests or the holy Pharisees. They were fishermen, tax collectors, lower class, maybe even peasants. And many would come to believe, but for many of them it took a long time. And there was much doubt. We see them stumble and struggle. Even those closest to Jesus would continue to exclaim, Who is this man? They would leave him. They would deny him when he said what he was going to do. Even John the baptizer later would question, are you really the one who is to come? So unexpected was this Messiah. Again, I'll say it should be incredibly hopeful. There's room for our doubts. There's room for our faith to grow. There's room for you and me and for our friends and family and loved ones. Jesus makes that room. Jesus breaks down these walls the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 2, 11 and following says it this way. Remember that at one time, you ethnic ones, which simply means you non-Jews, non you ethnic ones in the flesh were at that time separated from Christ and alienated from the citizenship in Israel, strangers to the covenants of the promise, having no hope and without God in this world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. 
Why then have we, the church, built walls, made restrictions and barriers for people to draw near to Jesus? Is it out of fear or power or control or pride? But again, whether overtly or covertly, if you will look like us and believe what we believe, you can find belonging with us. It seems to be ingrained in the way of the world. Most of us can remember junior high and high school. You had to look a part and pick your part and pick it early. You had to dress a certain way, speak a certain way, act a certain way, and perhaps you could be involved with that community, that group, that clique. And maybe it's better today, but my fear is it's not. And how is it that 13-year-olds have that ingrained within them? Because our world, with its clubs and organizations, our media, our political parties, all proclaim this way. Ironically, churches would point to other religious groups who have those restrictions, those believe and behave first, we would call them cults. And Jesus has something pretty strong to say about the cults of his day. Are we any different in this regard? Jesus, his way is not the way of the world. It's a call to belonging and to grow in our belief and to allow growing belief ultimately to change behavior. And that behavior is much less about morality, although we may be called more moral. It's more about obedience to the ways of Jesus of service, sacrifice, humility, mercy, compassion, justice, healing, and generosity. This is a big part of our vision of becoming a church with no walls. So may this time that we spend where there literally are no walls at Field Church, may that become rooted and ingrained within us, that we would be like a people who could see all coming to draw near to Jesus with an invitation May we become a church that breaks down walls as Jesus did. Jesus will make enough demands on people's lives when they draw near enough to lay down all things, to give up all, to follow him and his way. May we not put other restrictions in place. May Union Hill Church be a church that digs wells, not builds fences. Have you heard that analogy? Alan Hirsch uses it in a number of his books. He's a great missiologist. I encourage you to pick up a book or two from Alan Hirsch. A rancher who owns a large amount of land has a couple of choices to keep his herd or flock secure and safe. He can build fences or he can dig a well and hire a ranch hand or a shepherd. Now say a rancher owns something large like a thousand acres. At great cost would he build a fence to keep his herd in and keep the dangers out, so to speak. But if he digs a well, that herd will not stray all that far from the source of life, though they are free to do so. And if he hires a ranch hand to help, that ranch hand can, or shepherd, can protect the flock to some degree. But many would say it's much safer to build the fences. And as soon as you can afford to do so, you should. And I think churches have been building fences for a whole long time. May we dig a well where Jesus sat at a well with a woman and said, the water that I can give you will well up to eternal life. You'll never thirst again. If Jesus truly is the source of life, we need no fences to both keep people in and keep dangers out that we would feel a lot more secure with them. 
May we be a church that digs a well or proclaims the well of living water and invites all people to it. These are the questions that I'm asking, and with this, I'll close. Why aren't our gatherings filled with people who don't look like us? Why aren't our gatherings filled with people who would openly admit, I don't know what I believe or think about Jesus, but I am intrigued by him. Overtly or covertly, we're responsible. I'm responsible. By the way, Food Truck Fridays looks very different than Sunday mornings. I think there's some opportunities and solutions and suggestions, but I'm not going to leave them here. I just invite you to ask those questions and pray those things along with me and the ministry team as we have been wrestling. I'm okay leaving some dissonance because it may very well be dissonance that leads to repentance. Repentance, as Mark teaches, is a change of thinking, a change of mind, which leads to a change of action. If we're comfortable and secure, we will never change. But I will leave us with some hope. I intend to. It takes a whole lot less effort and time to tear down fences than it does to build them. James 4.8 says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. May we do that this morning. May we be a people who are continually drawing near to Jesus, near to our God, with the full grace that we are, we are yet coming to believe. Would we not invite others into that same journey with that same grace and humility? Jesus, you are the bread of life and the living water. We want to follow you and partake in all that you have for us. We believe. Help us in our unbelief. Amen.